Hello and welcome to the final episode of Object Relations, a series of conversations about the politics of psychotherapy produced in collaboration with the polyphony. Taking its name from the psychoanalyst Melanie Klein's theory of how psyches develop in relation to one another, this series will explore some of the questions about the politics of psychotherapy, psychiatry and psychoanalysis. Today I'll be speaking to Lewis R. Gordon about the philosopher, psychiatrist and revolutionary Franz Fanon, as well as Gordon's own work on black consciousness. Gordon is a philosopher, educator, public intellectual and the author of numerous books on topics including existentialism, phenomenology and post-colonial theory. His most recent book, The Fear of Black Consciousness, was published earlier this year by Penguin and Macmillan. Before I cut to our conversation, I'd like to say thank you again to Mark Pilkington, who has kindly provided the soundtrack to this series, and to Ava Gardner, who produced the artworks that accompany each episode. If you'd like to keep up to date with future episodes of Red Medicine, make sure you're subscribed on your medium of choice. And now to the conversation with Lewis. You've written a lot about Franz Fanon, and I was kind of curious as to, um, you know, how you became so focused on him and his work, and how how you were first introduced to his work. Oh, well, let's go backwards on that one. I'll start with how I was first introduced to his work, even though I guess it's redundant for me to say first, but that's already psychoanalytical because whenever we remember the first, it's already the re- repeated <laughs> version. It's a little thing about memory, but in terms of my memory. My mother's family is Jewish, but it's complicated if you're from Jamaica because a lot of, you know, in Jamaica, the national identity is black. And so even though a person could be what in another country be called white in Jamaica, that could be just a very light black person. So within my family, there were people who also were Rastafari, uh, which is already really funny because they're also Jews, but it makes it very complicated because to say that God was highly Selassie would be idolatrous. But the, one of the reasons they became Rastafari was because they were all black liberationists. So you could imagine what most black liberationists do is they understand several things. They know the importance of revolutionary music, hence the whole Bob Marley and the Whalers, the Abyssinians, you know, all of that stuff. And it's always books. Any serious revolutionary knows you've got to have books. In fact, one of the first things fascists, the right wing, always go after is education. They don't want us to read. They don't want us to learn. Now, the thing about my uncles is that they will have the books, but they weren't avid readers. However, I was a precocious child. Uh, Very long story. I started speaking when I was three months old and was already going through schools at three years old and just loved, loved reading. So I would read everything. And especially if someone walks in with a book that they're holding like their Ark of the Covenant, you know what I mean? It's precious. So you see the, so there were these books there and they had names like Cabral, Fanon, Nkrumah and all of this. And I didn't know what the hell these were and I picked them up and tried to read them. Didn't understand them. I could read the words, but didn't quite understand them, but I knew they were important. So my, my introduction to Fanon was as basically a child, okay? However, my reintroduction to Fanon 
was in graduate school when I was working my PhD. I took a course on political theology and it was taught by a woman by the name of uh, Sean Copeland, M. Sean Copeland. And within that framework, we were reading Le Dagnier de la Terre. And by then I'm armed with uh, a background in uh, existential philosophy and all kinds of other things and saw the immediate uh, reverence. And I began to think through because by then I had also read writings by Angela Davis, uh, you know, Malcolm X or El Malik al Shabazz, you know, all of these folks, um, you know, Kwame Torre, et cetera. So within that framework now in the US, instead of in Jamaica, there's already a different kind of black liberation discourse. And so I began to read Fanon, but the thing about it was that I read Fanon in a very different way than a lot of my colleagues in that class. And then subsequently, when I was writing my dissertation, which is on the, the concept of la mauvaise foi, which is bad faith is a translation, but that's not exactly um, accurate. I um, had the good fortune of studying with Maurice Nathanson, who uh, studied medicine, studied philosophy, phenomenology, philosophy of social science, etc. And he became my advisor. And I decided to look at La Mauvaise Foi and anti-Black racism. And as we were going through the books for the bibliography, and I was already reading Fanon in a different way, when we came across Fanon, he paused. And he said, so you picked a real intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> And to see this old man who grew up in Yiddish theater, he looked like high European stuff. You could imagine to be a black Jewish kid from the Bronx with this older, you know, um, Jewish professor from Brooklyn and the two of us there. And in a way, there was a connection with my uncles. See, we saw that connection. And the connection was connected to why I even went to graduate school. And just very briefly, I, in the 80s, I created a school for uh, young people nobody wanted to teach. It's called a second chance program. I was informed these young people were so difficult to teach that if 10% of them could achieve their secondary school diploma, it would be a success. And we had 85% success rate. And when you have that, you have to write studies. And, you know, as I was writing up all the quantitative data, this and that, it struck me you know, the real reason we were successful was not quantifiable. And the real reason was because every young person who walked into our space walked in as a human being. We were affirming their humanity. And it struck me, and this was the question that brought me to graduate school. If you ask any human being, you know, you're a human being, they'll say, oh, what are you talking about? Of course. Those young people would have said the same thing. When you treat a human being like, as a human being, a human being grows. When you don't treat a human being as a human being, when you dehumanize them, they wither. And so I was interested in the question of human potential. And because I had all this background in classics and all kinds of other areas, I thought I would have looked at it through antiquity, you know, through ancient thought, potential. But in the first seminar of Maurice Nathanson, it was on Jean-Paul Sartre and also his courses in Schutz and philosophy of psychiatry fell in love. I knew this was the place. These were the ideas. And so that moment of reverence, that moment of understanding the philosopher psychiatrist, who was above all, 
interested in the same question I had. That was what was different when I took the class. A lot of people, I'm, you know, I wasn't a theologian or anything. I was just curious on the topic. They wanted to know about God and all that. And I was interested in the question of human potential. And there it was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's such a wonderful parallel between what you were kind of already doing and then you kind of come across Fanon who's, you know, had, you know, real, a real kind of uh, shared purpose in what you're both doing. And um, for people, I mean, you're already starting to do it really, but for people that are, maybe aren't familiar with his work, how, you know, how would you introduce uh, him as a figure, as a thinker, as a, as a kind of intellectual titan, really? How, how would you introduce people to what you think his intellectual project, political project, was and is? Oh, sure. I mean, Fanon was a philosopher, psychiatrist, revolutionary activist. He was uh, a veteran. He was a person who detested violence, uh, was revolted by dehumanization, yet he volunteered to go to war. And he volunteered to go to war because he said, wherever there's an attack on human dignity, it's an attack on all freedom and respect in the world and we should fight against it. In other words, he believed true commitment to nonviolence is to paradoxically fight against violence. So, the th but the thing about Fanon is, in a way, similar to the story I just told about reflecting on, you know, my youth. You know, Fanon as a child was called Bergson <laughs> by, by his, uh, his friends and siblings. And uh, Bergson today, a lot of people don't realize it, but in the French world, there was a period where one would say, if you think philosophy, you think Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and Bergson. They, I mean, for the French to skip over Descartes is huge. So, so, and the fact that Bergson was Jewish too, you know, that gives you an idea. But so to call a little black kid in Martinique, Bergson, we shouldn't underestimate how gifted a child he was. But Fanon, what he brought to psychiatry, to revolutionary praxis, to political thought, was the centrality of the philosophical anthropological question. Because Fanon basically uh, uh, understood this. Fanon realized as a trained psychiatrist, and he was trained in forensic psychiatry and clinical psychiatry. And what Fanon understood was that Ultimately, the purpose of psychiatry is to make a human being at home with her, his, or their environment. In other words, to, to reintegrate them. But what do you do when the environment is colonial, racist, sexist, homophobic, classist, and all of that? There's something obscene of tr about trying to make a person at home with a fundamentally unjust or sick environment. And so Fanon observed a double sickness, the sickness of those who are at home with it, and a sickness that's placed against those who suffer from not belonging to it. Fanon had a word for it, he called it the murder of man or the murder of humanity. He was fighting against the attempted murder of humanity. So for Fanon, the core question for those who would like to look into his thought, because a lot of people look at his thought as exclusively looking at issues around black people. Now that doesn't, say that diminishes the thought because black people are people. But Fanon was fundamentally a radical, universalizing in the, in the uh, humanist. 
And so for Fanon, the fundamental question was if we're talking about liberation, we should ask what is being liberated? And what is being liberated is we're being unshackled from what closes off our humanity and what's being liberated is our humanity. And for Fanon, that's what he saw as the purpose of, of medicine, of psychiatry and revolutionary action because at the core of it, an oppressive society, an unjust society, a murderous society for Fanon is a sick society. Yeah, yeah. And in 2015, you published What Fanon Said, which is this incredible introduction, overview of his work. And it's actually how I was introduced to your work and was kind of one of the, whoops, and one of the first things I read um, when I was first reading Fanon. Um, and, you know, what's that, seven years ago? It's been I can't an incredible, yeah, incredible seven, seven years. years ago. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, I mean, could you talk about that book a little bit? I mean, what you hope to achieve with that book, what you thought you did achieve with that book, and, and, and then maybe I can ask you a bit about maybe how it's changed over the last seven years. Sure. Well, before I, I, I answer that, one other thing I'd like to add, given the remark I just made, is some people will misunderstand when Fanon says the word sick society. When Fanon says a sick society, it doesn't mean that every individual in the society is sick. What he means is the overall uh, set of relations through which people are produced are problematic. If you think about when you have an illness, for instance, it doesn't mean every cell in your body is sick, right? There are parts of you that can be quite healthy even though you're ill. And, and uh, so in a way he was in, in touch with Nietzsche's understanding of health, which is health is not the absence of disease. Health, health is the capacity to respond to illness, to disease. So societies that fail to respond to why they're sick, the inequalities, the injustices, and et cetera. That is the sickness. So if we come back to Fanon, um, several reasons. Um, the, uh, it was a very tricky thing. The, um, there, the thing about Fanon is there's so many people who uh, impute things to Fanon that are things he never actually said. And in a way they exemplify a pathology he talks about in his first book. Noir Masque Blanc, which is translated as Black Skin White Mask, which is published in 1952. We're speaking at the 70th year of the uh, book's publication. And, and the thing is, there's a, in the fifth chapter, he has this little phrase that's really rather powerful. He says, he says, uh, when I walk in the room, reason walks out. <laughs> <laughs> But in a way, it was not only about the subject of the book, Le Noir, the Black, but in a way, it's amazing the responses done to a thinker, a philosopher, a revolutionary in Black skin, Fanon, where if there were the same people who attacked Fanon, if there were white thinkers who said those things, it would be celebrated. So it was very weird. But the second thing was a form of intellectual laziness was at hand, which is that there are many people who projected onto Fanon 
and didn't actually read what he said. So they didn't read the writings. Third, because the discussion about Fanon was so dominated, I could say was now because I played a role in changing that, you know, look from my early books on, but it's so dominated by the English language that there are a lot of people took on the basis of the way initial translations were that these were things he actually said. A lot of people don't understand that translation is not necessarily isomorphic. A translator is trying to bring into another cultural context a kind of meaning. And the way in the English language people would mean things in the 60s, 70s, may not be the same as what a French writer in the 60s and 70s may have meant. And we could see this, and there was a whole cottage industry around attacking Fanon as sexist, homophobic, and all this stuff. And I, I don't believe in hagiography. If he were, I would just say so. I mean, there, you know, for instance, I've written why I still read people like Kant and Hegel and so forth, and they're racist, sexist, and homophobic. So for me, you know, it's about whether they're, in addition to that, if we address the humanity of the author, uh, we can criticize them and also find what's useful from their thought. So for me, it's not hagiography. It's just that these are a lot of things he didn't actually say. In fact, some of the things he said were extraordinarily progressive for his time. So for instance, he was attacked that his language was masculinist. But if you look at translations of Simone de Beauvoir, in the French language, you say, le, you know, if you're talking about the color, you say la, you know, for color, la noir. But if you're talking about the concept, then you say le noir, right? But a lot of people translate it as the black man. <laughs> so all over the place, you're putting man when, it, when he's very specific when he means a male. And he's very specific when he's saying Om, Jean, etc. So there are translation issues. But then there were all kinds of other issues. You know, a lot of people want Fanon to be a kind of legitimating practice for what they do. You see it today with the Afro-pessimists who completely distort his writings. You see it with the people who want to actually celebrate gratuitous violence. Well, I already mentioned that he detested violence. But again, for a lot of people, a black man who speaks unapologetically about violence is frightening because they're in a race, an anti-black racist society. Black men are supposed to be diffident. A black woman is supposed to be diffident, you know, constantly apologetic, you know. You could think about, for instance, how outraged so many people of color are across the globe as people look at the celebration of Ukrainians fighting for what exactly people of color were fighting for, which is their liberation and freedom from colonialism. So again, what I say, for instance, in my recent book is black people are being told by a lot of white people to do exactly what a lot of white people would not do. A lot of white people would not tolerate being humiliated or degraded. So they'd get up and fight. So because Fanon just basically says, look, black people are human beings. Black people should stand up for ourselves. It scared the crap out of a lot of people. So that's already that. And I talk in that book what Fanon said about those issues. But I also talk about the complexity. In all of my writings, it's never just writing. It's always an experiment in a particular problem of thought, which is how does one actually write about what someone says? Do you know what I mean? Because even when we say something ourselves and we look back at what we said, we realize we didn't always mean what we say <laughs> or, or what we discover is our subconscious spoke for us and we meant more than we said. So even when we read our own writings, we learn from ourselves.
So in a way, it was an, it was also a project in the problem of philosophical, intellectual, biography, thought, and beyond that, the very notion of how to communicate thought. What does it mean to say someone said? So in other words, I wasn't trying to speak as Moses with the tablets, you know, the definitive authority, you know, or, or Elijah Solomon, the great rabbi who interpreted, you know, Torah and Talmud, you know, answering everything. My purpose was to unsettle what it means to think about what someone said and to invite people to come into the, the loving, generous act of reading, for them to, 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 to be sufficiently piqued in their interests, to say, do I agree with Lewis? Let me go read it and find out. <laughs> you yeah. see what I'm saying? Yeah, and yeah. So, so that's why I wrote that book, what, right? It, it's subtitled, A Philosophical Introduction to His Life and Thought. And I put introduction on purpose. So it could, because I didn't want it to scare off the reader to say they can't come to it. I want readers to bring themselves to it. And so I wrote that book. I also wrote it at the time, you know, in terms of uh, Fanon's birth. As we know, in 2025, Fanon is going to be 100. So it was also to celebrate Fanon being 90, you see. And, and it was also beyond Fanon to intervene in certain problematics of the times. For instance, there are a lot of themes I look at in that book. So it is Fanon, but for instance, we're in a period of anti-humanism, post-humanism. I already pointed out Fanon's a humanist. Uh, and what, that, what would that imply? Second, there's a form, the domination of neoliberal and neoconservative thought. And there are people who rewrite Fanon in such a way that creates a form of complicity with neoliberalism and neoconservatism. Fanon would, would have a lot of problem with that. And additionally, there is the question of how people talk about race and racism. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks talk about race and racism in such an individualized way that mm -hmm. it actually reaffirms neoliberal thought. Whereas Fanon was very explicit about the politicality, right? The political question, power, what a political phenomenon is. Mm. And the idea that there are people who are allergic to power, they treat power as intrinsically evil, they don't realize they've bought into the Hobbesian and capitalist conception of power that where it's exclusively coercive. Mm. But there are positive forms of power. Power is the ability to make things happen with access to the conditions of doing so. We can't live without power. The issue that becomes stark in someone like Fanon is the abuse of power, is the use of power to disempower others' capacity to live their human potential. The positive use of power, which is what he wanted psychiatry and political action to be, is the use of power to set the conditions of possibility for other people to actually grow, in other words, to empower them. So liberation is an empowering activity. Oppression is a disempowering activity. And it offered an opportunity to bring some coherence into that debate. And then the other parts were rather striking and uh, creative to, to meditate on, which is in my writings, particularly in what I call Africana philosophy, African diasporic philosophy, I look at that philosophy as bringing to the forefront not exclusively, but to the forefront, questions of what it means to be human, questions of freedom, and questions of justification. I later on added also concerns of redemption, <laughs> but, but 
if I stick with the time when I wrote that book, those three, Fanon basically says, what's the point of talking about dehumanization if you don't talk about what humanization is? So if you're going to talk about oppression, you, you need a philosophical anthropology. What does it mean to be human? Of course, we're going to talk about freedom because enslavement, colonialism suck. They're awful. <laughs> so what's, you know, you have to have a discourse on freedom. It's just, I mean, freedom is a big question of the age. But the third part, that thing I said when he said reason walks out, is the problem of justification. Because Fanon realized if philosophy, if science, if the arts were used, were complicit with irrationalization and dehumanization, that creates a crisis of science, arts, and philosophy. And the language I use is justification is in need of justification. And that problem, that crisis of justification, that Fanon beautifully addressed, that is the core of that reason walking out because what is Fanon to do? I mean, you know, if, if, if there's this great party going on, you know, you imagine the disco music, you know, and there are all these people partying. Uh, as I mentioned in my Spinoza lecture uh, last month, uh, Hobbes is there dealing with, you know, his bowling balls and things colliding. Locke is looking for property. And, you know, Hume is making an impression on everybody. And, you know, I had to say that Nietzsche was at the bar. <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite book by Nietzsche is, on, uh, you know, The Birth of Tragedy from the Spirit of Music. And Hegel is being dialectical and, and you know, Marx is being material. Fanon jumps in the room and the party stops. <laughs> so, I mean, so the question is, look, what is Fanon to do? You see, if Fanon tries to force reason to listen to him, it, it becomes violence. So Fanon deals with the paradox of facing an unreasonable form of reason to which he has to reason reasonably. In other words, he has to deal with unreasonable reason reasonably. Yeah. And that is the paradox of all, all kinds of philosophy uh, uh, emanating from any community of people who are dehumanized. Mm. And you touched on it briefly there that about the, the kind of change around how his work has been considered and dealt with. I actually thought when you, when you mentioned translation, I thought you were gonna say that the discussion of his work was dominated by discussions of violence, because that seemed to be very, the kind of vogue around Fanon was that he would always be discussed when anyone wanted to talk about violence, which always felt like, I don't know, maybe we can get into that. But um, since, since that book's come out, a lot of his, um, a lot more of his writings become available. A lot more of his texts become available and more widely read. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on how those texts have been responded to and how the discussions around his work have changed. I mean, another massive question is that it seems like he his work has just become more and more essential, you know, over the last few years as we kind of continue down a kind of horrible rabbit hole of kind of political destabilization and more and more pressing questions about medicine and the role medicine plays in our lives and how it has a relationship to power. Um, so to, to round, round up that rambling question, I mean, how do you feel like the scholarship around Fanon has changed since you wrote that book? Oh, considerably, but several, uh, several things. You're right when you brought up that translation issue. Even though I was talking about tr textual translation, you're right. In terms of cultural translation, 
there was a tendency to look at Fanon simply as an apostle of violence. You're absolutely correct. And there were people also who would do little rhetorical tricks. For instance, I had a lot of problems with the David Macy book. What he did, he did this little trope, which is he made a serious book that was as thick as possible. But, but his goal was to de-intellectualize, to disparage Fanon. He actually didn't want people to read Fanon's thought, but he himself didn't engage the ideas. So do you notice what I said, life and thought? If you think about it, even if you're gonna write a biography of Kant or Hegel, it'll be weird if you never talk about your thought, if you just, you know, right? And so the book was more like a big book of gossip. There are a lot of it, it's not substantiated. A lot of it were problematic and it was a really problematic book. So that book was also written to deal with, um, frankly, bad scholarship, okay? But bad I'd, scholarship that was weaponized as, as, as an ideological framework against addressing what exactly someone like Fanon has to offer. Uh, you know, recently there are people looking at our times thinking about th this fetish of who is the right philosopher for the moment. There's some people who are looking for their Heidegger or whatever. And I don't think it's about who's the right philosopher, but I think there are communities of thinkers who have contributed to a good analysis for the moment. And I think Fanon is among them. And there's so many obvious reasons why. For instance, the reason I was able to write that book is I had access to a lot of things other people didn't have access to. I know his daughter very well. I had access to things from letters, other writings. Uh, there are things that were not published yet. But yeah, the, uh, the recent alienation freedom for the, since we're speaking English, I just use the English. Uh, that it's a wonderful collection of his psychiatric writings, his plays, his poems, his class lectures on, on social psychology and his, his other political writings, his, his, some of his ethnographic work in the Maghreb. You know, a lot of things that people claimed he didn't do, <laughs> he actually <laughs> did. It was just right there. That's my point, right? So I had access to a lot of that, but a lot of people didn't, right? So that was one thing. But if we go, um, I would say it was not just me, but I have to give a shout out to the important work of Nigel Gibson and Roberto Beneducci and Alice Shirky. They're really, uh, really important in, in, in this kind of discussion. And also a psychologist by the name of Ilan and others. And what it is, is a lot of people, they were looking at Fanon as if he made no contribution to psychiatry. They were just looking at him as a psych, a, a, almost like a, a, a body mechanic who, or a, a, a brain mechanic who went out and became a revolutionary. What they had no idea is that Fanon was actually part of a revolutionary movement, movement in psychiatry itself. And to, to understand this, uh, we could think about one of his mentors. Now, what's interesting is Fanon developed the same theory independent of his mentor, but with this mentor, he was able to bring it, in, it with a kind of certification, okay? Because that made him a chef de service, the person who could be the head of a psychiatric facility, uh, which he, ended up being in Algeria. But the short version is, you know, Fanon originally uh, had written a dissertation called um, Sur la Désalienation de Noir, right? On the, on the Désalienation of the Black. And in French, Désalienation has a double meaning. So it's because it has a material meaning, but it also has a psychic meaning. And when he wrote it, uh, the problem was that his professors were psychophysiologists, you know, for them, real psychiatry has to have a lesion, a physical cause. So there's no way they were going to accept that dissertation. So it was, re it was rejected. 
But two weeks later, he submitted a, a dissertation of Friedrich Ataxia, which is the generation of the nervous system. And he got his doctorate. Now, what a lot of folks didn't realize is the argument he made was pretty much the same argument, right? Because Fanon was critical of the idea that mental illness was, was exclusively physiologically caused. So by looking at patients who were suffering from nerve degeneration and pointed out that some suffered mental illness and others didn't, logically means that mental illness is not physiologically caused. Now, it's, the thing about it is what he noticed about the people who were mentally ill is that they tended to be narcissists. In other words, the issue for them is not the disease, is that they had the disease. We <laughs> <laughs> yeah. find of others that got it, you see? Whereas the people who understood this is horrible, anybody could get, you know, they would be, say, concerned about how they behave, how, how do they interact with the physician? How's the other patient doing? They think about others. Even though they, I had a cousin who died from this illness and it was at, near the end of her life, all she could, the only way she could communicate was through blinking her eyelid. That was about it. So there was a way, even to the end, she cared about others. Whereas the kind of angry, it's all about me, 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 why me? I don't care if others, the rest of the world could be suffering. That's the malignant narcissist and so forth. But Fanon does say in, in um, that a lot of, it's not exclusively, but Narcissism is at the core of a lot of mental illness. And he doesn't mean that all narcissism is bad. I, have to, I often have to point out to people that the human species is a narcissistic species because we spend most of our time looking at other human beings and listening to other people. We live in a human world and it's, and it's important. That's why we're here because we're fragile creatures. Cult, culture, language, all of that depend upon narcissism. But malignant narcissism is like that disempowerment. It's when it's about it's so much about me that I cut off others' capacity to communicate and participate. So Fanon's brother, Joby said, you know what, you should actually call it on the disalienation of black and the white, because um, this, this problem is, it really, really encourages white people to act in a sick way as normal. Now, Fanon submitted the book to Edition de Sol and Francis Janson, one of Jean-Paul Sartre's protégés, ended up being the one who took it on. And I, I tell a story about this in a recent piece I, I wrote for Transition. Uh, when, when Fanon showed up, uh, Jean, uh, Francis Janson said, I, I, I love the book. I, I mentioned it in what Fanon said, you know? I love the book, I love the book. And Fanon said, you mean it's not bad for a book written by a N, you know? And Janson said, he went to the door, opened and said, get out. And Fanon smiled and said, I can work with you. He, re he refused to be patronized. Now, it was Johnson who said, you know what? Change the, the book title to Black Skin, White Mass. And this is crucial because a lot of people don't understand the, the title. They think the title is about black people wearing a white mask. No, the book basically, Joby was right. The book basically says, look, colonialism and racism have produced a world in which black people are expected to be locked in the epidermal schema. In other words, locked in our skin as things. That's dehumanization. But white people are expected to live in a lie. The lie of a white mask. The lie of the white mask says, as white, you're perfect. You're better than everybody. You're smarter than everybody. 
You're intri- you see, and once you list up, you notice I bring you my recent book, Fear of Black Consciousness, right? If you, if, if you take a child and say, yo, you're smarter than everybody, anything you want her to get, if you bring, a party doesn't begin till you enter the room, after a while, that child, you're going to raise a schmuck. You're going to raise a malignant narcissist. The child is going to say any moment he or she or they don't get what they want, they're victimized. So that is, so the white mask is a sickness. And again, Fanon is not saying individual black people, individual white people must be sick. He's saying that a society that tells black people we're only our skin and white people that they must wear that mask. Because let's face it, everyday white people are saying, Huh? Um, first of all, I'm not like a lot of the, the, the people as portrayed in movies. I'm not rich. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't always have the perfect answer to everything. I don't, you know, the list goes on. What, what many white people in their everyday life know is that they're human beings. However, the moment a black person pops up, many white people are encouraged to put on the white mask and pretend they're perfect in front of black people. Fanon calls that a sickness. And, and one of the things that led to him writing that book was actually from his internship days, because he noticed that, you know, people of color would come in and say, oh my God, you know, something wrong with me, Fanon would, and, and I mentioned, he makes a distinction between client and patient. A client is a person you're considering to be a patient. And uh, if you've taken them on, they're a patient, but the person would come in, doctor, doctor, there's something wrong with me, wrong with me. And when Fanon would speak with him, if you're angry about being called the N-word all the time, about no matter how educated you are, not having access to employment, by police officers following you and beating you up, you're angry for good reasons. (laughs) So ironically, they're suffering, Fanon noticed, because they are actually healthy. It would be weird to come to say, doctor, I'm so happy I'm called the N-word all the time, or for women to come in, oh, doctor, I'm so happy Uh, I'm sexualized all the time, I get lower pay, I'm abused, isn't it great? That would be weird. So Fanon, this is where Fanon moves to the question of a sick society. Now I bring this up because once this, he mentions in that book, sociogenesis. And what he means by that is that there are socially produced forms of meaning that are harmful or productive. And if the response he would give to those clients is, you know what? You'll feel a lot better about yourself if you go out there and be politically active if you do the things that would help you change your life. Even because, and it's true, I even mentioned in my Fair Black Consciousness book, why you must always stand up for yourself. I said, even when you lose. I opened a book with, with fights I had as a child. I, I was looking around, I'm not, not a bully. I wasn't looking around to fight people. I, I hate bullies though. So I've had my butt beaten from even taking on 10 guys who are bullies. They're white people who came with bats and sticks and I don't back down. And sure, I got the crap beat out of me, but you know what I went on with? Self-respect. And the thing, so the thing is that, that um, what Fanon was saying is that if it's to be actional, to be politically active, whoever you are, human beings, that we need dignity and respect. And to do that, we must be active, politically active. Well, in the battle against the fascists in Spain, uh, against the Franco, forces was a brilliant psychiatrist by the name of Francois Tesquelles. At the age of 22, he was head of the whole medical division for the Republicanist Front. Uh, Small R Republican, because in the US, you know, 
big R Republican is fascists. But anyway, um, he um, fought against the fascists and they lost and he ended up in France. But he developed a theory called institutional therapy. And institutional therapy was basically the idea that it's not that you are individually mentally ill, but illness is a relationship, a relational situation. So the project was to create healthy communities because the hospital itself was a sick institution. You see, all right? It's not, so one would have to create a better sense. If you have a hospital where people in straight jackets are being, going through lobotomies and isolated, that's depersonalization. The more you isolate a human being, the sicker you make them. But if you have one in which they're, they're respected, a lot like the story I told about those, those adolescents I worked with in the 80s, they will grow. So, uh, and, and among the, the, the students who came to uh, Saint Alban, Saint Alban, where uh, Tesquelli's uh, set up his, um, his, his um, school and his hospital, were people like Ori, who was um, one of the um, famous uh, psychiatrists in France around, again, institutional therapy. Uh, people came through there like Deleuze, but Fanon also was trained by, by him. And so I say in the book, it was love at first sight because the two of them had the same understanding of, of, of that, 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 that human reality is a social reality. And a lot of human suffering comes from desocialization, desocialization and dehumanization are one, basically. And so with that in mind, Fanon, as you know, went into Algeria and got involved with the revolution, et cetera. But the main thing is if we look at today, what do we notice about today? Well, we notice today that there are several observations. I talk about not only the one Fanon said, but, but in my recent book, Fear of Black Consciousness, which is the moralization of reality, right? And, and, and it creates these binaries, right? A lot of Dehumanization's binaries, for instance, binary. White people are universal, everybody else is not. But of course that makes them just another kind of universal, universal that's not white, right? Uh, settler society, apartheid, segregation. The settler has everything, the colonized, nothing or nearly nothing. So these binaries, but liberalism led to also, if you individualize people enough, they imagine they're like gods, like they're individually fixing the world. So if things are wrong, right, but there's nothing wrong with you, then you take the position you're a victim. But if you're a victim, there must be a victimizer. So you see how these binaries begin to spill out? And the problem is, if you notice today, almost everybody you meet is harmed. Almost everybody's a victim. And the reason a lot of people want to say they're a victim is because they've created a false binary that in the world, they're only victims and victimizers. And it, so in order to be legitimate, and the moment victimization and moralization begins to substitute as the means of access to political identity, then you're really erasing the political with the moral. And so what happens, of course, is the problem here is that although there are people in the world who are victimized, and there are people in the world who are victimizers, there shouldn't be something wrong with you if you're neither a victimizer nor a victim. And what is left for what in the past, and it's still 
being submerged today is the category of the concept of the agent citizen, the person who acts politically. You'd, in other words, in order to respond to victimization or to, res to correct victimizers or just to make a society better, you need to have all hands on deck. You need to have the, the non-victims and the non-victimizers and they could all meet victim, victimizer, non-victim in the political realm as citizen to negotiate how power affects the distribution of harm or the production of health. So Fanon understood this, institutional therapy, Tisqueles, Ori, all of these people understood this, that the separation of politics and health, that is part of the problem. And the problem is neoliberalism and liberalism, they want our moral subjects, not political subjects. And the thing about political subjects is they don't need to be perfect. They don't need to be pristine. They need to be active. We need to have people we can work with. But today, and you know what I'm describing is what plagues what the people call the left. Because the many people on the left have become so moralistic that they can't work together. You can't get anything done if you have to have perfect people to work with. As I was reading your book and kind of rereading it and making my notes and stuff before speaking to you today, it was hard not to think about the Roe v. Wade decision and, and to try and map these ideas onto points you make in the theory of black consciousness about the dualism between the mind and the body and consciousness and the body and how white supremacy and white supremacist organizations are relatively happy with black people's bodies and they're relatively comfortable with black people's bodies and even covet them and, and kind of fetishize them. But um, it's, it's, it's a black consciousness that they're terrified of. It's a black person's body in possession of a, of a kind of politically conscious person. And I was kind of thinking about how that mapped onto how we might think about reproductive rights. And it seems that perhaps there's a comfortability with um, black people reproducing and having babies, whatever. But what is the fear is that people might have a consciousness to make their own decisions about when and how they reproduce their families. And and I was just wondering how you kind of felt about that. And, and just in a broad sense, how you are making sense of this recent attack, I suppose, and, and how you've kind of been reacting to it. Yeah, no, no, it's absolutely important we talk about this. It's absolutely important. Uh, the first thing is the way, one of the things I, I say right out in the book is that in fear of black consciousness is that I argue for a multidimensional approach. I say, you don't, you don't see a gender walking, a race walking, a sex walking, et cetera, right? We're all, we're all race, sex, classed simultaneously. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I do, I'm critical of the way people talk about the body. They confuse the body with corporate reality. And the thing is, yeah, a lot of anti-Black racists actually don't have a problem with Black bodies. They actually have a problem with the idea that that body could be a Black consciousness looking back. Uh, they're perfectly happy if there's a white consciousness in a black body. So they work with a dualism. Uh, the kind of philosophical approach I have, of course, rejects dualism. So I'm, I'm talking about the logic of the, the racist point of view. But at the same time, the view on those bodies is the ones that are black bodies embodied with black consciousness, is that there are always too many of them. So that's the part that we, when I talk about different kinds of invisibility, I pointed out that the big issue 
with blackness is quantitative, right? There's an obsession with numbers. How many blacks are there? How many, how many, how many, how many, right? And then, you know, it's wild. You know, there are places in the United States and a lot of parts of the world where you're diverse if you have one. <laughs> and, 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 you know, there are places in the United States if the black population in the school exceeds 6%, they call it a black school, which is weird. So that's one thing. Now, what, what's striking if you look at what Roe versus Roe v. Wade, it's first built upon um, a sacred concept in liberalism, which is privacy. However, if you look at the actual history of the United States, there wasn't actually a big uproar about the Roe versus Wade decision about abortion. In fact, a lot of Southern evangelists, as, as example, practice abortion. They weren't against it at all. However, there is a constellation of issues that meet in what we call the left. And among them is the idea, for instance, there are people who, their issue isn't the female body. The issue is the female body with agency. They wanna control that body. Well, similarly, as I point out, the issue is not so much that of the existence of a black body, it's of a black body with agency. I point out in the book, if black people are, are mobile, there are people who say their places, black people don't belong. I call it illicit appearance, okay? So you see the agency issue is crucial. A lot of left issues are about agency. A lot of right-wing issues are about control. They're about closing off agency. Well, if you look at not only the United States, but Europe at the end of uh, World War II, so not only North America, but Europe and, and its outposts like Australia, there was a concern that there were certain people who are now minority positions. A minority position was, for instance, deregulation, right? The, pri the privatization of, of social life. A minority position was that uh, women should have no rights. A minority position is that black people should just be enslaved and, or you know, segregated, et cetera. This is one of the reasons why I'm careful to point out the distinction between white supremacy or white mass and what individual white people Many individual white people don't take the position that black people are, are, are animals to be locked away. But there's a sufficient number of white people, if they join with people who have other fascist beliefs, their numbers could enlarge. And so if we, if we, if we look at the U.S. as an example, political strategists going back uh, to the early 70s realize that their individual conservative, fascist, and neoconservative positions were not popular, not at all. Even right now, if you ask 80% of Americans, they support abortion. But so it became a question of how do, how do they get power if they're individually, their positions are not popular? Well, it turned out there is something that Southern evangelists in the United States found very unpopular, and that was the Voting Rights Act and desegregation. In other words, they were patently racist as, as a category. You know, Jesus is white, everything's white, 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 white. You know, all, I talk about that religious stuff in the other. But there's a sufficient number of people of all other background, including white people, who did not support that position. Now, there were conservative Catholics in the United States and their position was against abortion. And we just point out that's also very unpopular. And then there are business people in the United States who support deregulation. And again, if you talk to a lot of Americans, regulation is popular. 
you get clean water, you have access to healthcare, you have, you know, there are a lot of things that are pretty popular among everyday people. And, and so given that, then we come to another issue that, again, a lot of people don't realize this. And this is a, a race class issue. When I speak in South Africa, when I speak in European countries, and when I speak in North American countries or in Australia, I have to remind people that we have irrefutable proof that social welfare states and socialism work. And they always look at me shocked because they take, they take the fall of the Soviet Union as irrefutable proof that it doesn't. Uh, the irrefutable proof is structural white wealth. The fact of the matter is pre the decision to implement social welfare states and social policies, they were done along racial lines. They were for whites. Uh, white people were being treated as crappy as anybody else. There were, there were individuals who were very wealthy and a lot of everybody else was in squalor, children dying, blah, blah, blah. But the need for a buffer class, because there's a point at which revolution happened. People will say enough is enough. The buffer class became whiteness. The buffer class is if you could set as a condition of whiteness, a social welfare state, then you could create, it's not that every white person will be well off, but a sufficient number would be in good shape. But you have to structure it in such a way that then you create the second line, that it was all by themselves they did it, right? So it's like a person looking over a fence and say, look how tall I am, and ignoring the fact that somebody's holding them up. Yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> and, so, and so a lot of uh, this, this amnesia leads to this belief somehow there's something intrinsic about being white that makes you hardworking, creative, and produce wealth. When in fact, there were always hardworking white people and so forth, and they were dead poor, right? You, you know, I mean, look at Ireland. Ireland would tell you that until certain social welfare state measures were put into place, particularly in Ireland, because they were being gutted. The people were being treated like crap. So, right, so, so, so the fact is, and in Poland's another example of this. So there are many examples. So what I would point out, if you look at what white people had in apartheid South Africa, oh my God, access to so much free infrastructural stuff, good healthcare, excellent schooling, all of this was being presented for whites. So what we have had is a history and a colonialism of capitalism for blacks, in other words, <laughs> privatization and public access for whites. That is why we have structural white wealth. And in fact, the reason so many white people are angry now is because for the first time in, the many, in, in more than a century, it's not actually really being done on race. People, it's being gutted in a way. People are losing access to the social welfare benefits regardless of race. And if you have inculcated into white consciousness that you have a right to everything, then in a way, these white supremacists who are pissed off going the streets and going buck wild there's a truth in what they're saying. They are losing something because for the first time, everyone is losing, you see? They're used to the old system where the others, it's like Fanon's example of the sick person, mentally ill person says, no, I don't mind people being sick as just long as I don't have the disease. <laughs> well, this is what's going on. So if we bring it to the present, right? That coalition of radical privatization anti-abortion, anti-integration, right? In other words, anti-racism, anti, anti, anti -racism, <laughs> right? 
Together, they're a sufficiently large group. They're still not the majority in the United States, but they do comprise a pretty large minority. And given the structure of the American legal and legislative systems, for instance, an abomination in the United States is the existence of the Senate. Uh, the Senate means that in states that the entire population is not even the size of the population in a borough of New York City. Can have two senators and New York has the same two. And California, the fifth largest economy in the world only has two senators. That, me that gives the red states power. That was designed to maintain slavery and inequality. We should get rid of the Senate. Then the other technique was they set up a strategy to stack the Supreme Court with Catholic conservatives. You notice the decline there, Jewish views and sex and other things are very different. Look at the decline of Jews in the Supreme Court. So all of this is together and it's a, and well, what they've done is another important element to know here. It's the concept of lawfare. Lawfare was a technique uh, developed. It was developed by fascists, but it was coined that way uh, by 2001 as a technique of the use of law as a weapon. In other words, you, 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 you and this is basically apartheid South Africa was lawfare. Because let's face it, if you look at the history of almost all forms of oppression, it was done through the use of law. And they had, they had the military, the police, but they had law. And so to use lawfare wedded with a campaign of transforming um, any opposition to it into a slur, right? If you think, for instance, the way critical race theory, which is a academic concept <laughs> and something in law schools is turned into a slur such that people don't even know what it is. Responding to it, I usually point, you can make anything into a slur. You, if a, for instance, if you begin to start protesting, could you believe they're teaching our children mathematics? After a while, you could have people having hearings and why is math being taught to children? You could make any, demonize anything. So that technique, right, is also a technique being used in the concept of the left. And that, that created a kind of consolidation to, to produce American fascism, and uh, it, it and all the elements are there. It's a restriction of the on the agency of women, on sexuality, which is why it goes off to LGBTQI plus communities. Definitely, we already know about race and indigeneity, and the irony of it, of course, is it's actually against class because of privatization, but because it rallies certain people with the view that the mechanisms that's alienating their lives is not the powerful forces of capital, but somehow these other people getting up something, then it, it, it taps into also white and interestingly enough, communities of color working class, there are black communities of color, I mean, black communities of, of working class people who are also resentful because they're not thinking about the fact that four families own most wealth in the world. They're thinking about whether there's a, a, an immigrant crossing a border or you know, whether uh, they're, they're more, they're, there's a trans person wanting to use a toilet. These are distractions from where power is manifested. So what we're seeing right now is we, we don't want to undermine 
the gravity of the fact that this is an attack on women. But Clarence Thomas then said he's going after contraception. What the hell is that? If you go after contraception, of course, it turns a man's penis into a weapon, right? Because the first weaponization of the penis is, well, rape, right? I mean, there are other ways to people can be raped, but this in, in heteronormative or at least in, in, in homosexual sodomized rape, it's the penis. But now you add to it a double threat, sperm, right? The idea that you could be raped as a woman and you have to go full term with that child. And, or if you're in a relationship that you want to leave, you're now forever connected because of pregnancy. So it creates a fundamental inequality of an anatomical <laughs> extension called a penis in, in the lives of, 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 of women. Uh, and, and the idea that women are not to have contraception, that, that, that's, I mean, what century are we in? But, 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 the, but, but it's connected to a wider issue which is to create the structural inequality by which one can actually now have that coalition block functioning as an assertion of power, which is exactly what you have in all fascist movements. So it's, even though at the moment, Roe versus Wade, it's being set up as specifically about female, the agenda is to turn the clock back on rights for blacks, browns, LGBTQI, all those issues, and eventually, because it's about boogeyman and slurs, it's going to be under every rock as a communist, etc. And so it's ultimately against anti-leftism. It's not against radicalism, because this is radicalism. It's fascist, it's right-wing radicalism. But it's against, it's against any form of leftism, because all leftism is based on a different coalition. And this is why it is such a danger that among the left is a failure to understand what a political project is by replacing it with moralistic projects. I'm thinking about the call in your book about building institutions and it's making me think of Fanon again. And in, in the broader radical psychiatry movement, there was different opinions about institutions. Some strands of uh, that movement just did they just wanted to get rid of institutions and they were totally, you know, we don't really want anything to do with it. Whereas Fanon comes from a movement where they had a slightly more nuanced opinion where you could have institutions and you could question what they were doing, but ultimately they could be productive. And, and so maybe the final thing I ask you about is, you know, how we could think about the institutions that, we're, that we should be building and that we should be maintaining. I mean, how should they look? How should we think about power in, in that process of building institutions? And, and what can we kind of pull from that movement of radical psychiatry to, to, to kind of guide us in, in, in building institutions that treat people as humans? Sure. I think, simply put, it is unfortunate that left intellectuals stood by while the right hijacked the concept of the global. Right-wing globalization is privatization. Privatization of power actually radicalizes inequalities, right? Public globality is about public access to power. So the big distinction is instead of the erosion of public institutions and replacing them with private ones, which by definition are exclusionary, we need to build up public institutions. Public institutions globally are designed for global access. This is one of the reasons why I argue against the nation state. 
we need to have a global access of movement, et cetera. And Fanon, not only Fanon, but institutional therapists and many others. I, I think also there's so many people all the way through to liberationists like Angela Davis and others who would agree with this, that we need to have humanity having public access for true democracy. The mistake people they make is that they think democracy is simply about a ballot. No, democracy is about public access. It's about people having access to the conditions of possibility through which to live livable lives. And so that is ultimately what is feared by the people who are the proponents of the privatization of power. That's why they met up and set up this bargain with the, 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 the anti-abortionists and the, the anti-black racists and the xenophobes, etc., because each of those are exemplifications of the privatization of power. They are each other's natural allies. We need to understand that we need to renew, infuse, and be creative about how what public institutions are and what they ultimately are, are expressions of our humanity. We are actually public. But so implicit in privatization is dehumanization because it ultimately is cutting off our capacity to communicate and with each other build meaning through which to live livable lives. I can't help but think about again Fanon and kind of people in, in his institutions and they, and they were all about not giving over decisions. Yeah, I, I had a tutor at university who always used to talk about direct democracy and he used to always talk about kind of in a similar way to you phrased it as democracy is about, you know, I want to make these decisions and these decisions are difficult and I want to make them with you in this room and I want to think about how these decisions are difficult and kind of passing them off is something else. And I'm thinking about all the meetings and the ways in which the, a lot of these institutions were kind of defined by difficult, long, sometimes boring and arduous conversations by people just making quite everyday decisions in a, in a quite, not mundane, but a very everyday way. And, and I'm just thinking about the idea of building institutions sometimes maybe feels like quite a grand thing, you know, but um, I'm always struck by the way in which that's not really the case. <laughs> yeah, that's... It's not the case because people don't understand what an institution is, you see? Uh, for instance, when uh, Fedor and others were in the hospital, the what, what I often remind people is that there's a form of fetish of materiality, okay? And that's been imposed upon us because we also have a metaphysics and uh, philosophical anthropology from capitalism, which is the idea of the isolated substance individual. And well, what that means is my reach on realities as far as my physical body can go. But as we know, you're at the moment we're having a conversation from different shores, right? You're in the UK, I'm in the United States, and we're able to communicate. We're in a social meeting together because in an expression of humanity, which is called technology, from what Ada Lovelace did by developing the algorithm for the computer, Lattimore did by developing the filament, through which we're able to see each other. And he also developed the, the telephone that wasn't Alexander Graham Bell, where we can, uh, it's just that they own the patents, you know, but they got, but it got this black dude to do the inventing. <laughs> and, or a woman, you know, like Hadi Lamar, who was able to figure out wireless technology in a way that we can use it today. We bring all of these things together 
what we begin to understand is that what an institution is, is the outward expression of human creative power. And so what in that hospital, the hospital is not the actual buildings. Uh, a lot of us are realizing this now through the pandemic as well, that ultimately a lot of, I usually point out that if people give up on the project that they bring to those buildings, you can have ruins, you can have shells. The buildings are there. You could say the actual, this is why in the Fear of Black Consciousness book, when I talk about institutions, states, politics, and so forth, I point out, for instance, that a city is not the urban buildings. A city is a place in which citizenship takes place, the activities, right? And so there are cities that are not necessarily built upward, but are spread out. It's the intercommunicative practice that makes cities. Well, similarly, institutions are what people do. And so with Fanon, yeah, there's a physician, but the physician is the person with a form of advanced knowledge. But, but the patients, they, what Fanon realized, and, they, and not only Fanon, but people like Paulo Freire with education, is that an excellent physician is, uh, 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 if one transforms forms a hospital in a place in which everybody, including the patient, is working at the project of health, then there's unique things the patient can contribute. So what they did was to organize, for instance, not only um, newspapers and special sessions and strategies together, a good physician is actually working with you to develop a strategy for your health, for you to understand, so you actively also produce health. Well, similarly, the institutions in a society, we don't, maybe there's something wrong with having big palatious you know, um, you know, environmentally problematic buildings all over the planet. <laughs> Maybe we should begin to build out using, for instance, geothermal energy. Maybe we should find ways that would facilitate um, different uh, uh, structures of space, architecture. In fact, Fanon in La Dagne de la Terre is critical of the notion of the metropole the metropolitan city, you know, is, he argues that we can set up sites of power and creativity that can actually spread out in different ways. So the issue with the, the democracy, the fundamental issue is gonna be access to communicative practices through which we can creatively build different ways of organizing things together. And right now, we, we sure, we have the material technologies that we're using, but you know, these are not the final statements on our material technologies. And we should think also about our political technologies. In other words, broad technology to understand that the human being is a technological reality and, that, and, and, the, and the technologies of power, right? Can, can, be, can be structured in such a way that, that we can have a different conception of global life. And for instance, and, and, and people always say, well, you know, that's ideal. But, you know, what I find amazing is there's so many things we do today that people thought were impossible. Just not, we don't even have to talk about 30 years ago. There are things we do today that people thought were impossible five years ago. It's because somebody tried and people are like, oh, you really could do it? Well, well, if we could get to a point where, think about it, if, if, if there were, and, and this is one of the reasons why the agents of privatization want to destroy the European Union. That's why there was Brexit. Because ultimately what it represented 
right, is, think about it, if it were a sufficient place, place where, as I heard um, Daniel Cohen, I forgot his last name now, Cohen, I think he's burnt. Anyway, he said in his childhood, he's a, he, you know, this is a person who was a Shoah survivor. He said in his Holocaust survivor, in his childhood, if he were, someone were to tell his parents that a German can go to France or a Frenchman or a French woman or a French person can come to Germany without going through customs and a passport, just walk, just drive over. They would say, are you out of your mind? That is impossible. So what the attack on the European Union is, is what it signified. Because if you can have that, well, why not a similar thing across the continent of Africa? We already have that people can, we, you can do it across North America. A good chunk of North America, you can go across without having to use papers. And then before you know it, South America, after a while, you just have three big blocks that people, and then people say, why are we still going through this? Create one large area in which there no longer needs for passports. People don't even realize people didn't even have passports a little more than 100 years ago. No longer need to have any of those things. And now we have different kinds of political problems we're dealing with. And we can actually deal with them without all of this distraction of the, this constantly producing illegal people. And boy, think about what it would do for labor. Because right now, capital depends on the idea of the vulnerability of labor. But if labor could say, you know, you're not treating me well, I'm going to move over there. Then, then you have to try to keep labor, which means better standards of employment, better conditions. This is the deeper issue. And I could, you could trust me on this one. In terms of the, the, the intellectual core of the right, they know this. this. They're afraid of the rest of us knowing this truth. Thank you to Lewis R. Gordon for that wonderful conversation and thanks again to everyone who's listened to this series. It's been a real pleasure to have these conversations and there'll be plenty more coming in the next months and weeks. Uh, Make sure you subscribe if you don't want to miss out on regular episodes with all kinds of interesting academics, activists and writers.